And I think that especially for those of us with conditions where focus is a problem, we have to chase what excites us. Novelty is really important to us. Not just going, where can I get the followers? Where is my audience hanging out? You know, how can I get in front of them? Because if they're all hanging out in a place that you hate, you're going to resent it. You're not going to want to do it. It's going to fall to the bottom of your to-do list. It's going to feel like eating the frog every time you log onto that platform. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, you'll know that I'm preparing to head back to school very soon. I'm enrolled in graduate school to get my master's in clinical mental health counseling. I'm incredibly excited to add the role of therapist to my list of qualifications. And obviously this is going to take a few years and I can't wait to share this journey with you. But most of all, I am just so excited to continue to help more women learn to love their ADHD brains. That said, with the addition of graduate school, I will have limited availability in terms of coaching moving forward. So this fall, I will only have two group coaching cohorts. One is starting in September and the other starts in October. Registration is now open for both of those courses. And once those are full, that will be it until 2024. So head over to womenandadhd.com slash group coaching to reserve your spot before they're gone. Here's some feedback from a few former clients. Katie is the most real and genuine, caring ADHD coach out there. Working with her, both in her small group coaching experience and one-on-one, -on -one, has truly changed my life. Another client says, Katie's group coaching exceeded my expectations. I would 100% recommend this to others. Loved it. This course has opened up a new world of hope. Another client says, if anyone is on the fence about working with Katie, 100% do it. So again, you can register for group coaching over at womenandadhd.com slash group coaching. If you're looking for other ways to work with me, I do have a few one-on-one -on -one spots open for coaching. If you'd like to book a discovery session, you can go do that at womenandadhd.com slash coaching. And I now offer deep dive strategy sessions. These are one-time 90-minute calls with me where we will review your unique ADHD diagnosis journey. We'll explore some of your specific struggles, answer questions like, I've just been diagnosed, now what? Or what are the best ways for me to treat and manage my ADHD? Or what kind of accommodations do I need in my life? Is ongoing coaching the right option for me? Together, we'll develop some strategies so you can walk away feeling like you're on the best path forward. You can book a strategy session now over at womenandadhd.com slash coaching. Okay, here we are at episode 148 in which I interview Meg Casebolt. Meg is the founder of Love at First Search, an agency singularly devoted to helping online businesses get found in search results and turn those new readers into leads, subscribers, and sales. Meg loves to help business owners spend less time trying to hack the algorithms and instead create SEO content that attracts their ideal audiences to their website while helping entrepreneurs cut their dependency on social media for their business visibility. We talk all about running businesses with ADHD, time management, and Meg's new 
new book. We also talk about SEO practices, digital marketing, and how to cut back or even break up entirely with social media. Also, as you'll find out later in the episode, we talk quite a bit about AI tools. And when I asked Meg what she might call ADHD, she suggested I consult ChatGPT. So I decided to ask ChatGPT what it would call a condition based on the list of the 60 additional surprising traits from my Hey, It's ADHD online course. It's one of my favorite parts of the course. I put together an unofficial self-test of 60 not-so-obvious traits that you don't always hear about when you're first diagnosed with ADHD. And of course, you can check that out at womeninadhd.com slash ADHD course. It's called Hey, It's ADHD. It's a self-guided course. Anyway, I took the list of 60 traits. I entered it into ChatGPT and I asked it, what would you call a condition based on this list? And I was actually really impressed with the answers. So go check out my episode show notes to find out the five alternate names ChatGPT would give ADHD. But first, let's listen to this wonderful interview with Meg Casebolt. Welcome, Meg. I'm very excited to meet you and um, hear a little bit about you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Katie. I have to say, um, I think it was when you had reached out and you said, I'd be happy to talk to you and your audience about cutting back and breaking up entirely from social media. And I was like, this is an option. Like, I can't even tell you what my face was like. And just that this was, uh, I mean, I talk about this on the podcast too, all the time about that. Um, but just this idea of, uh, oh my God, uh, I'm so excited to talk about how this might even be possible for running a business because it's absolutely the albatross uh, around my neck. So but before we get there and talk about your business, I would love to hear your story about your ADHD diagnosis and kind of how long ago were you diagnosed and what was happening that kind of led to the diagnosis? What were some of those things where you those signs that were like, oh, I should really look into this? <laughs> I think uh, my story is probably very similar to a lot of 30 something millennial parents, which is that uh, three, so we're recording in 2023. So three years ago, the pandemic started. I had a, a five year old at the time who was in kindergarten. And, uh, you know, they sent home the worksheets and he was home with me. I had a five year old and a two year old, right? And the five-year-old was doing kindergarten, and I tried to sit down next to him to go through the worksheets, to read the books, to do the things. And neither of us could sit still long enough to finish half a worksheet. Neither of us. And at first, I was like, wow, be being a kindergarten teacher is really boring. That must be what it is. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> I started, you know, looking at attention focusing activities for, you know, five-year-old brains and taking some of these compensatory and coping mechanisms into place and like, oh, let's have some music on in the background. Let's reduce distractions. And then I started doing it with my own work and being like, wow, this, oh, this is, this is really helpful. Oh, is this, <laughs> <laughs> is there something I should look into here? Um, and I think a lot of us were kind of at that point of uh, when the pandemic started and we had a lot of our coping mechanisms forcibly removed from us, the recognition of attention behaviors became more obvious. Yeah. I couldn't focus on anything, let alone teaching somebody else who also couldn't focus on anything. <laughs> Oh my god. Well, that's how I was diagnosed as well. I call myself a pandemic diagnosis because I I remember feeling like my kids were a bit older. So I had a my son was in third grade at the time and my daughter was in seventh grade. And so uh, but I was helping my third grader a lot 
And I remember having those moments where we were asked to like watch a three minute science video and then answer the questions about that we of things that we saw in the video. And we would watch the three minute science video and then we would turn to the questions and neither of us knew the answers to any of the questions because we weren't paying attention to the video. (laughs) I can't watch video to save my life. I cannot learn from video. Right. It was in that moment where I was like, oh, okay, we need to know what the questions are first before we watch the video so we know what to listen for. But if it's just listening to like watching a video for three minutes, we're not paying attention. And if we are paying attention, we're not really grabbing like we're not able to like understand what we're supposed to be listening for, which was really interesting. But yeah, I mean, for me, I, I was diagnosed because it was like. I was complaining to my therapist about how I couldn't get anything done because I was just sitting in waiting mode, right? Like I just was like, I, I, both of my kids were locked in their rooms and I didn't know if they were, one of them was going to run out and the Wi-Fi would be out or Zoom, they couldn't get on Zoom or didn't have the link or there was always something that I was going to get interrupted for. And so I couldn't work because I knew that I was going to be interrupted at any moment. And so I was complaining to her about that, right? Like I couldn't focus on work because I just always knew that somebody was going to pull me away. And that's when she was like, dude, look into ADHD. How awesome is that, that she recognized that symptom? Because that's not the most obvious symptom. That's not the like leap out of the pack symptom. That's a really awesome situation for you to have found. Well, I was, but she was diagnosed with ADHD because her middle schooler son was diagnosed with ADHD. Right. So it's like the, it's like the dominoes start to fall in terms of like who's get who gets diagnosed. And then they look around them and they start to pick out like, okay, here are all the people who need to be diagnosed. Uh huh. So I, I got diagnosed first because I had the first doctor appointment, but I had already been setting up the breadcrumbs for my older child with the pediatrician to be like, I think there's some inattention happening. I think there, you know, like I had seen the signs in him. I got the first diagnosis because I <laughs> I went into my doctor's office and I said, I think I have ADHD. I printed out the checklist. I filled it out. I left it on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> And then by the time we got to my younger son, he's also on the autism spectrum. He has that comorbidity. And so I was able with both of my kids to, by this point, I was able to advocate for them and say, listen, I know that this is hereditary. I have been diagnosed. This is the medication that's working for me. So by the time I got to their pediatrician, they were able to say, okay, well, let's try, you know, the same medication for you that we tried for them. And it sort of eased the process for them because we already had that medical piece in place. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, Okay, so now how old are your kids now? So three, so they're eight and five? Five and eight. Yeah. Yeah. Five is actually a really, that's super young because it's, I feel like, when they're still five, a lot of that, you don't know what is developmentally appropriate versus what is, you know, what are what are your expectations of a five-year-old when it comes to, especially when it came to sitting at a computer during that time, right? Like, we didn't start any medication for them until they were back in the classroom. I And they were so young. I'm so grateful that they were so young. I can't imagine third grade, seventh grade like you had. It is funny as parents, because, you know, I was just talking to my brother about this because his kids are much, they're much younger than mine. So um, his daughter was five. She was in kindergarten and at, at the beginning of the pandemic. And I remember being really grateful that my kids weren't that young, right? Like I was like, I was really glad my kids were self-sufficient enough that I could do something, right? That they weren't that like toddler stage, you know, where you just have to be on them all day long. And there's no ho- like possibility of even also working. But like, I was talking to him about how like my daughter who was in seventh grade, who is now 
going into 11th grade, like she was really, really deeply affected by the lockdown. It's had some really lasting effects in terms of her social anxiety. And like, I feel like teenagers now who went through middle school, like those were some really, really formative years. And he, and so he having really young kids was sort of like, Ooh, we, we came out of that unscathed. Like, I'm kind of glad I didn't have older kids who are re- really felt the effects. I think it was harder to live through with younger kids, but now the ramifications don't feel as intense. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. True. Maybe that was just my experience though. I don't know. My kids are pretty cool. Parenting's hard at every age. Who are we kidding? Right. <laughs> There's always going to be something. It's always something. Cool. Okay. So you were diagnosed with ADHD and then you were already running this business. You're already this entrepreneur. What were some of those things where you started looking over the over the course of your whole life through this new lens being like, oh my God, the, the signs were there all along? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the fact that I was running a business that in the first five years that I was dating my now husband, I had four different jobs and he was like, why do you keep changing jobs? And I was like, I'm bored. I, I I can't just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. And my performance evaluations at work would be like, wow, Meg's such a pleasure to have on the team, but wouldn't it be great if she did some work? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, not, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but there certainly was a, a level of you know, the administrative work was really hard for me to continue. The repetition was really hard for me. I was always seeking stimulation in classrooms, always wanting some sort of that, you know, that novelty, but only in the topics that I was interested in. So in college, I didn't want to take a science class. So I found a way to get an American studies credit to count for my science elective that was all about the the history of the atomic bomb in literature. Uh, I love it. <laughs> like, okay, let me look at all of, like, let me go rewatch Dr. Strangelove and write about that for my science credit. Because the, there's that innovation of like, these are the things that I'm excited about. These are the things that I'm curious about. And I will go self-advocate to make that make sense to me because I don't want to go do the periodic table again. I've already done it three times. I can't do it again. So yeah, just finding finding workarounds, I think, is a very scrappy ADHD approach to things. I'm interested in this. I'm not interested in that. How do I get to do more of the thing that I want to do and not bother with the thing that isn't exciting? Yeah. Yeah. So were you in a very like high intensity work place before you went into work for yourself? Or did you find that entrepreneurship was one of those? Because I find for me, like, I could work seven days a week. Like, I, I have a really, really hard time with those boundaries. And so even though I used to be in journalism, where there was like a lot, it was very high intensity, I don't feel like I've ever worked as much as I do as an entrepreneur. I worked in nonprofits. I was very idealistic about what I studied and how I wanted to see an impact change in the world. And so I worked for nonprofits, but I, my, and my first boss sat me down when she caught me working on a Friday night after I went home and I was like doing data entry or something. Right. And she caught me cause she was working that same time. <laughs> and she was like, she sat me down on my Monday morning and said, Meg, we don't pay you enough to work that many hours. Uh. And she taught me how to set my boundaries around it. And she was very clear that like, you need to turn it off at 430 on Friday afternoon, because you will burn out. And she was very protective of me and taught me to be that way. 
that actually got me in trouble later on when I was working in more, more intense fields, like doing marketing for an architecture firm where there is the expectation of 50, 60 hour weeks. And I'd been trained in the nonprofit space of like, no, 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 we don't stay past 530. (laughs) So I think then when I started my business, I started it part time because I, you know, I did the math and figured out that half of my take-home pay would have gone to childcare. And instead I decided to freelance and work during nap time and bedtime and when I, when my, you know, like kind of just shuffling it around. And that was when it started to feel a little bit more addictive. Like I had to always be on, I had to always be working because I wasn't working that traditional nine to five hours. It was any pockets of time. It was like time confetti. You know, like if I could throw it in the air and grab it, then I would use that time to work. And if he was, you know, playing independently, I would pick up my phone and post on social media or I would reply to a client email. It was like I had to always be on, especially, you know, in that point, it was new motherhood. It was so isolating that the community that I was creating online was the input that I was getting. It was the, the, the interaction, the intellectual stimulation that I needed. I couldn't talk to a newborn. I couldn't talk to a toddler. So I went online into these business communities and kind of threw myself in there. Yeah. It's one of the things I really struggle with, especially with Facebook, because like I, if Facebook came around when my daughter, who's now 16, was a baby, and it saved me. Like that community, those communities really, really saved me. You know, all of those questions is this normal? What color is this a normal color of poop, right? Like all those things that you immediately go, and there's, uh, you know, thousands of Turns people. Out every color poop is normal. I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> Right. But all those questions and like community is so important. And we talk about that a lot, too, with ADHD and neurodivergence and like how community and and the validation of like, am I normal is something that a lot of us really, really crave. And so social media really does provide so much of that community element. But at the same time, like it for me, I had to leave. It was so mentally destructive for me for in Facebook, uh, especially Facebook around the pandemic and elections and just all of the vitriol. Like I was like, I need to, I I was an on off switch. Like I couldn't have a balance with social media. So I decided to leave. But when I left social media, I feel like 99% of my friendships dried up as well. Like how, because we, everybody relies so much on that. It's like, it's like passive friendships or so this passive socialization, right? Where we don't really have to like write letters or call each other anymore. We just like their posts. And so anyway, it's lower commitment for sure. Yeah. I'm going on this whole tirade, right? But it was so it's interesting to me, like I always grapple with that community element versus like saving my mental health. (laughs) Yeah. And I think especially for those of us who are neurodivergent, especially ADHD, you know, when we log on, it can be so hard to log off. Hundreds of times in my life, I've logged on and be like, I'm just going to go look up this one thing. And then an hour passes and I've got complete time blindness. I have no idea what I just read. I, I, you know, I just go into this vortex of information overload and stimulation. And like, it's so hard to pull ourselves back out of it. And I think it's harder for us than it is for neurotypical folks, you know? Oh, I feel like we are boss to a flame. I don't even think about it. It's so unconscious, right? It's muscle memory to just like lift like it's true. Like I go, I pick up my phone to look at the, what the weather is. And I I forget in that s- split second of picking up my phone, I will forget I'm even there for the weather and I hit Instagram. 
If you have ADHD, it can often feel overwhelming to find the right treatment. And then when you finally do get an appointment with your local clinician, there's no guarantee that they will have the adequate background or understanding of ADHD in adults, especially in women. You might end up leaving that appointment more confused and disheartened than when you entered. That's where Dunn comes in. Dunn is an online ADHD care platform that can get you all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. With experienced clinicians who know exactly what to look for, you can start getting personalized care as soon as today or tomorrow. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Dunn for just $79 a month and pharmacy co-pays as low as $0. Visit get.dunnfirst.com slash podcast to learn more. Again, that's get.dunnfirst.com slash podcast. Dunn, turn ADHD into your strength. So when you were launching your business, you did have a real like uh, need for social media. How did it kind of click in your brain that you were like, I could actually do this without, without this constant promotion? Or was it like, a, was it an aha moment or was it sort of a slow drag? <laughs> sort of both, sort of both. So I, in 2017, I started a Facebook group where I was teaching people search engine optimization. I recognize the irony of teaching people in Facebook group how to not be on Facebook, but that's okay. But, but it was the place where people were congregating and they could learn it. And it wasn't really, you know, 2017, it wasn't really as much of a conversation to get off social. It was just, here's an alternative, right? And I was running free challenges and I was growing my email list and the Facebook group was working really well and people were showing up for Facebook Lives. And then, it, you know, we just saw a decrease in reach and in people engaging and in conversions into paid programs. And over time, we started to see that sort of slip. And I'm I'm a data person. Like I, I can geek out on any spreadsheet. So we were always tracking, you know, how many sales did we make from the Facebook group? How many click, blah, blah. I ran quarterly live challenges. And then at the end of a weekly free challenge, I would open the doors to a paid program. And that was sort of our, our launch structure. And then in t- t- 2021, in spring of 2021, I ran a, a live challenge and nobody showed up for the lives and very few people bought the new program. And I looked at the person who was running my Facebook group and we went, this just isn't working anymore. It was, and it's not. It's not that she wasn't doing her job. It's not that it, it was just the algorithm changed and the society changed. We all flocked online in 2020. And by 2021, we were like, oh, I just, I can't be in this space anymore. After I closed that launch, we looked at the numbers. We looked at how many of the people in our group were bots, how many we thought would never give us a dollar, and decided to shut down the Facebook group. And I talked to the social media person, Sarah, and I said, I'm sorry, I just, I can't afford to keep you on for a Facebook group that isn't converting. I let her go. And then I just forgot to post for three months. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I love it. Okay, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But it wasn't like, you know, I I made a big announcement. I shut down the Facebook group. I talked about that intentional decision and why we're doing it and how to get on the email list if you want to hear from us. And we did the whole announcement thing. And then I was just like, (sighs) you know, that like exhausted, it's over feeling. And without having a team member to prompt me to be like, hey, we need to post in the Facebook group on Tuesdays and Thursdays about this and this and this. I just didn't. And you know, two weeks, four weeks, whatever, it went by. And suddenly two months went by. And I was like, oh, well, 
I've still been putting out my YouTube videos. I've still been sending emails to my list. And I do not see a difference in the amount of leads that I got in summer 2020 versus summer 2021. The Facebook group, the Facebook post, the Instagram post, the LinkedIn connecting was really good at nurturing the people who already knew me. But nobody knew was finding that group and buying from me very quickly. And people who were finding me were going to my YouTube channel uh, or they were joining my email list or they were being referred to me for my relationships and the, the collaborative partners, the referrals that I was getting, those did not stop when I left social media. So I just kind of took a break. Once I realized that it had been two months, I was like, I wonder if I can go 100 days. Because <laughs> that's just how our brains work. It's like, let me give myself a challenge. Let me see what happens. <laughs> I want like a nice round number. Three months would work, 100 days. You know, like, let me see what happens. And on the 100th day I posted, I was like, guess what? I've been gone for 100 days. And people were like, oh, we didn't even notice. Right? Because the algorithm doesn't show you anything. It, they just expected that they weren't seeing it. They didn't realize they'd even made the shift. But nothing else in my business changed. And I started to have more and more conversations on this topic. And then, it, you know, that was September. I came back into social media. And in December, I started a podcast to talk about what is actually working and where does social media fit into that? Whether you, you know, you choose to leave, you choose to diversify, or you go all in, but you're more careful with how you spend your time. So it doesn't have that same impact on your mental health. Yeah, it's funny because I have two Instagram accounts. I have the podcast Instagram account, which is if you've ever seen it, it's very, um, you know, it's just three posts every every week there. It's just the same feed. It's very lovely. I don't ever want to mess it up. And the whole reason I started had this other account was because if I was like, if I ever had anything that deviated from these three posts, I wouldn't want to put it on my, my lovely symmetrical feed. So I have this other account and I had this other account where I was posting feverishly and I had this whole schedule. And I was doing all these reels and my podcast account has significantly more followers than my other one that I was putting all of this effort into and totally burnt out on. And then just was like, I can't keep this up. I can't do it anymore. And I just kind of laugh because this other one that just sits here. So the idea of followers has become sort of irrelevant to me now because yeah, it was what there was this thing, like you said, I was working towards, which is like, I got to get to this number. And then, and I had this moment where I was like, what's the final number that will make me happy, right? When I kept trying to increase my followers. And I was like, where, where's this going? Like, if I get to, I was like, oh my God, I'm at 45,000 followers. Now, I was like, what, where's the number? Where's the cap where I'm going to be finally, you know, feel like I can get off this hamster wheel. And once I realized that number didn't exist, I was like, this has to stop. <laughs> right. What's the definition of success? And if I hit some sort of threshold, what doors does that open that aren't currently open to me? You know, if you hit 50,000 followers, could, could you then say, I'm going to go pitch myself to a conference to speak at it because I can say, I have 50,000 followers. Like, how does that change your public perception? And how does that change your internal validation and your, and your ego? Because a lot of this is our ego. A lot of this is us wanting to be seen in like a, what has become a digital stand-in for our society to say, look at me, I provide value. Look at me and see that I'm still here. 
And I need to be recognized. Yeah, I feel like I heard you talk about this. Maybe if this was on your podcast or in another interview where you were talking about that idea of like, the more we rely on that kind of the hits and the likes and the comments and the validation, it's like it becomes more it becomes so much more meaningful, right? So then we start going after the validation, right? As opposed to what we actually came here to do, which was to sell a business or a product. Or <laughs> to make money. Right. And money does not, there is not a direct correlation between your follower count or your likes or your reach and the amount in your bank account, unless you're selling sponsorships or something along those lines where you can say, here's my reach, here's my this. You know, if you're selling to brands, it's a little bit different. But for most of us who are straight B2B or B2C businesses, like I have clients who have literally, I have a client who has a million Instagram followers and has never made a sale from Instagram. But then they work with us on SEO, they get people into their email funnel, they start to sell through that. So it's, and it's still good that they're there. It helps with their brand recognition. It helps with their nurturing, but they cannot attribute a single sale to their million Instagram followers. Yeah, no, it's true. I had a similar reaction to that. And that's when I ended up stopping posting on Instagram because I was like, no, it's great. I love being sort of top of mind and feeling very much like I'm helping people. But at the same time, it really wasn't doing anywhere near the amount of conversions that my podcast was doing, right? Which I loved and never burnt out on. It was great. You know, like I was like, this is where I found and, and, and people get to know you, right? So it's like the people who want to work with you are getting to know you on a much more authentic level with that. And I think that's so something that a lot of people aren't talking about too, which is what where's the satisfaction in your marketing? What is it that you are enjoying doing? What is the thing that lights you up? I like... Well, you have specific offerings for women with ADHD. So you have these conversations that can then lead into here's how you can join our community. Here's how we can work together, right? Like you have a pretty clear call to action here. My call to action for my podcast is not that clear. It's not get off social media and come to SEO because that's not always the best solution for everyone. My, my podcast, I think of as let's talk about what's happening in our industry. And hey, if you want to do this thing, sure, I'm over here if you want to find me. So there's not a direct correlation. There's not conversion metrics. On all these things that I teach people how to do, I don't do for myself. But I love the conversations. I love having these, you know, deep dive dialogues with other humans who are exploring these same things. And sometimes, I'm going to get a little woo here, the energy that you bring into your marketing is so clear to the people who are engaging with it. So when I was doing YouTube videos about how to do SEO, I had to really like force my gut to be like, I know this is converting, but like, it's a little boring to talk about this stuff all the time. <laughs> and same with like taking the YouTube videos and splitting them up. And this was like IGTV days, you know, like how do we, how do we repurpose it across all these platforms? I didn't feel excited. And TikTok came along and I was like, I cannot make myself get excited about TikTok, so I'm not going to do it. But the podcast, you can tell from my tone of voice right now, this is something that I love. This is something that excites me. This is, you know, and I think that especially for those of us with conditions where focus is a problem, we have to chase what excites us. Novelty is really important to us. Um, so, you know, not just going 
where can I get the followers? Where's my audience hanging out? You know, how can I get in front of them? Because if they're all hanging out in a place that you hate, you're going to resent it. You're not going to want to do it. It's going to fall to the bottom of your to-do list. It's going to feel like eating the frog every time you log onto that platform. Whereas if you can find even a smaller group of people who love to consume content in the way that you like to create it and who are engaging with you and you can be in dialogue with them, then it's worth it to track the thing that you love, even if it has a smaller volume of you know audience. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. And that's one thing I really credit my business coach years ago, uh, Lori Ostrovsky, who had said, you know, her whole, her whole mantra when I was working with her was like, what's that one thing that lights you up and do that one thing and don't feel like you also have to be everywhere. So she was always sort of, you know, cause I'm like, I'm easily distracted. So I'm like, I might be doing a podcast and then just suddenly be like, Oh, I got to write a book. And I would drop the podcast and go write a book. And she was like, pick the one thing that's really going to be, the thing you do, and then everything else is sort of ancillary. And it can, you know, it can, roads can lead back to it. But for the most part, it's like, yeah, don't abandon ship because you think something else that because you feel like you need to be in all places at all times. And I found I, I call that. Yeah, I always have a team member. I always have a team member that I give the role of naysayer to. <laughs> they are they I'm like, Right now, her name is Megan. Before this, it was Teresa. Before it, it was Brittany, right? Like people just shift around on my team. But we had a hashtag that was Brittany says no, because it's like, nope, you're just Meg, you're not allowed to do it. Teresa called herself my parking lot attendant because it was like, great idea, Meg. Let's put it in the parking lot. Let's bring it to the quarterly meeting. And if you still want to do it in three months, we can figure out a project plan for it. Like, we are such ideators. We are innovators. We love to chase new things. And I always have a dedicated team member who's like, great idea. When, how, and what are you giving up? Uh, oh, what are you giving up? That's a big one. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I just, I've spent the last six months writing this book and it's like, okay, what are you giving up to make that happen? Right? What are the things that have to give in order to create the, both the time and the mental energy for you to dedicate to this new project? Yeah, that's something I feel like I've worked with a lot of clients who have that workaholic, you know, it's, it's like this excite. I feel like we are very excitable, right? We always, you know, we have a lot of ideas, we generate a lot, we want to do all the things we see ourselves doing all the things. So we end up in a lot of those situations where it's like, sure, I can take that on. Sure, I can take that on. Sure, I can take that on. Oops, I'm burnt out, right? It's like, it's all or nothing. And so <laughs> like, I, I work with clients that kind of figure that out where it's like, you are, you have to think about yourself as a limited resource. So every time you bring something new in, you have to make room for it. It's like a bookshelf with 20 books. Uh, every time you want to put a new book on the shelf, you have to figure out which one's going to leave in order to make room for that. And if... <laughs> oh, no, you just get a bigger bookshelf. Bigger bookshelves! More books, more books. Don't listen to her. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, because I think we have a, do would have a tendency to do that, right? Which is like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So that's amazing that you've actually appointed uh, these people on your team. How did you amass this team? Because I feel like that's another thing that, you know, for so many of us as entrepreneurs can be really, really difficult, which is to delegate and to create trustworthy team where we where we feel like we can adequately communicate, but also be able to delegate in a way that we are not making more work for ourselves. Sometimes I find that when I work with people, I end up doing more work for myself because I'm like, they didn't do it properly. And I don't want to tell them they didn't properly because I don't want to hurt their feelings. So I'm just going to secretly do it myself instead as well. And then, re you know, like, I feel like I have a really hard time working. <laughs> 
<laughs> working with a team. Welcome to being socialized as a woman in 21st century capitalist society. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but seriously, I'm, I'm, when you talk about your team, I'm like, how did you build, how did you build a team? Because I cannot be the only person out there who is really, really struggles with that I guess it's just, it's delegation, but I think it's like delegation mixed with communication, right? Where it's sort of like, I don't even know wh- how to tell you what I want to have done. So I'm just going to do it myself because it's easier, right? And we get into that, that loophole, of like, I'll just do it myself. I'll just do it myself. I think the secret that I learned several years ago, accidentally, was to always have somebody who is maybe not my polar opposite but who is an operations-minded, process-driven person as my right-hand person. You know, in like the rocket fuel terminology, it would be I'm the visionary and they're the integrator. I don't love everything about that dichotomy of those two roles. But, you know, I have somebody on my team who works less than five hours a week. And this is what she does is she makes sure that things are running smoothly she and I, she lives a town away from me. She's the only person on my team who's local. And she and I sit down and come up with our strategic plans for the quarters. And then when people have questions about like, what are my priorities supposed to be? They go to her. You know, I don't know how the system works. They go to her. So having somebody who's very operations driven and she's the one who tells me her name's Megan. So it's a little confusing because we're both Meg and Megan. So that's why I'm just using she as a pronoun. But um, we sit down, we come up with the plan and then having people go to her and be like, I don't know how this works. It's sort of taking me out of the loop because I have trained her so well, because there have been times where we sit down at the table together and we get out, you know, a visual whiteboard. We use Miro for this and we're like, okay, what is the process that we want our clients to go through when somebody comes in through our contact form? What's the automation that happens? And then she'll build out the automation and active campaign. And when something's broken with it, the team knows to go to her to fix it. So I probably could hop in there and fix it, but I am no longer the owner of that tool and of that automation. And I know the tool. I could, I could pull it together. But now I'm the one going, hey, this broke for me too. And having team members who own different things. And and, recognize, and I think a big part of that for me is not just having the processes, although that's huge, and we can come back to that, but having the knowledge, the self-knowledge that the things that need to be done on my team, I am not always, my brain is not always the best person to build those systems. So we brought on about... Nine months ago, we brought on somebody to do specifically to do inbox inbox management, customer satisfaction, community management, like to just keep everyone in the loop to keep them happy. And when when she would say like, what was the last thing that happened with this client? I'd be like, ah, I don't remember. I didn't write it down. Right. So now she built a system for me where after I have a call in, you know, in my calendar, she'll ping me and click, it'll already be a project in ClickUp where I then have a task assigned to me that's like, write down your notes from this call. And she has built an entire CRM system for me that pings me when it's my turn to be part of it. So I'm no longer creator. I'm not even doing the follow-up. I'm just downloading the information from my brain in a comment. And sometimes it doesn't even make it in ClickUp. Sometimes it's in Slack. And I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I had that conversation with that person. Right. But no, she knows my, I don't want to use the term blind spots. She knows my limitations. She knows the places where I falter because she looks at my calendar and she's like, oh, Meg has a really busy day. She's going to forget to check in with me. I'm going to ping her. And I have given her the right and responsibility to do that because otherwise it won't happen. 
That's my executive. I'm outsourcing my executive functioning is what I'm doing. Right. Yeah. And then that's where I think, you know, I talk a lot about the difference in socialization, which is I think that as women, we are especially socialized to believe that if we want something done, we have to figure out we have to do it ourselves. Right. And we can only ask somebody else to do it if we have already tried and exhausted all options and have somehow have to admit failure. And then we have to ask somebody for help. Right. Whereas I think men are socialized to have support systems. So they're sort of like, well, okay, if something wants to get done, I have to figure out who's going to do it for me. (laughs) And if nobody else will do it for me, I'll do it for myself. Um, And so it kind of works the opposite way. And so I feel like, you know, that it's like a muscle to build, which is like, if there's any part of me that is not excited about this, I have to immediately figure out who else can do it for me. Um, And that's really hard. Like, I feel like it's not innately part of my wiring. And that's why I think sometimes it does make sense to build out these systems where like for our SEO projects, I have specific responsibilities for them. I'm the one on the client calls. I'm coming up with the initial strategy, but I don't necessarily have to be the one to do all the research, all the content, all the, you know, building everything in a Google doc. So I could do all of that, but I know that in our workflow, I do steps one, two, three, and then I hand it off to this team member, and then they hand it off to this team member, and then it goes out the door, right? So having those specifically delineated roles, having cross-training, we have three people who do research in in any given project. I'm like, oh, should this one go to Shannon or Elio Monique? Because they're all part-time contractors. They're all moms, you know? So sometimes things come up and they're like, oh, but it's, you know, my sister-in-law's in in town from Denmark and I won't be able to work this week. Great. Someone else will pick up the slack or we'll talk to the client about an extension versus me going, well, I have time. Yeah. (laughs) Because I want to pay them. I've I've priced myself so I can pay them so that I absolutely could still go do all that keyword research. I still have that skill set. I taught them how to do it. I create, or I should say, I created the trainings that they watched to know how to do it. But that doesn't mean that I'm necessarily the best person to do it anymore. And if I did it, I might break the system of the next person in line because I, they, the three of them have collaborated to be like, okay, here's how we do this now to make sure that there's quality control. It's like passing on the family recipe. <laughs> it is. <laughs> hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was 
deep into hyperfocus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy to access, self-guided and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, it's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Okay, so I want to backtrack a little bit about just talk a little bit about SEO because I feel like we didn't we kind of jumped right in there. And I, if there are listeners who really don't know what the hell we're talking about, I just want to backtrack a little. So my understanding of SEO, which is search search engine optimization, my understanding of SEO has always come from the journalism side, right? Which is like you want your articles to be found, so you got to use keywords that will you know to anticipate what people are going to search for. I, I've said this about the podcast when I was diagnosed. One of the first things I did was type women ADHD into the podcast, uh, into my podcast player. And so I knew what I wanted my podcast to be. I didn't want it to become some, I didn't want to name it some kind of weird hybrid name like squirrelpreneurs or something that nobody would ever search for or even know how to spell. Like I wanted it to be super, super it's findable or findable. Is that a word? Um, it is now. Right. So that's my understanding of SEO. Is there something more to it when you're talking about it in terms of businesses? I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of what are the benefits of it and how do we need to think about it in terms of user experience, which is I want to create something that people can find in the moment that they need it. And I need to anticipate what the things are, what are their problems, what are the solutions that I can provide for them, what are the things that they already know versus what they need to know in order to make an informed decision to be able to buy something. All of that is part of our content strategy based on what are the things that they think they need. Now, to expand a little bit, you made a really good point, Katie, that like you went into your podcast player and looked for it. A lot of people think of SEO as being Google only, but you you can go into... Spotify or Stitcher and use that as a search engine. YouTube is the second biggest search engine on the planet. Amazon's a search engine. You know, like there are so many different search engines that people use for different reasons. Pinterest is a search engine. eBay is a search engine, right? Like I feel like ChatGPT is becoming one of my most used search engines now too, which I'm finding interesting. I wouldn't necessarily call that a search engine. I would call that an information aggregator. But same idea when like I'm the same way where I'm like, I have a question and like who's going to answer it as fast as possible. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like random chat GBT. I was like, so give me like a tell me who Ariana Grande is in 200 words or less. And it gave me like a. Because I knew I'd heard her music and I was like, but is she the same one who was in the show? Like, just give me the blurb and that way I don't have to read the entire Wikipedia. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Huge fan of ChatGPT. Um, it has its limitations. We can talk about that too if you want. But, you know, any of, I, I wouldn't, and also ChatGPT doesn't provide citations. It doesn't guide people to the original source content. It isn't quite as clear about where it's getting that information. So it's harder to fact check. Don't use it for your reports, kids. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) While I was writing the book, I was like, hey, ChatGPT, 
Tell me, give me some resources to check out on this. It just made up resources from made up organizations and then gave me made up links. And I was like, mm, that's not research. <laughs> <laughs> Did you use it though for your book? Congratulations on your book. It's coming out like next week, right? Isn't it coming out really, really soon? Uh, yeah. Uh, be out by the time you send this. By the yes, time this by the time this episode out. airs, it will have just come out. So congratulations. I'll make sure to put a link to that for sure. Um, did you use AI for your book at all? I used a little bit. Yeah. So so the actual like book blurb, I used ChatGPT because my book is basically a, a dis- distillation of podcast interviews. Um, I pulled a lot of excerpts from the interviews, but sometimes I would put the interview in and be like, what's the most salient point if I want to talk about this? Or like, I didn't want to pull it and be like, rewrite this quote, because I did want it to feel like an excerpt of the podcast interview, not just what's the the paraphrase of it, but what's the actual quote of the conversation that I had. But yeah, I certainly used it for, uh, I like to think of it as like a co-brainstorming tool. And a way to consolidate information, not necessarily to aggregate or synthesize information, but to to help me get over bumps. Right. Yeah. I use it all the time when it's like that, I, that feeling of staring at a blank page just to get past that paralysis. Uh, I use it all the time. I also write fiction and I use it for like, I have a character named this and I want this vibe for her sisters. So if she's named Victoria and if she comes from Connecticut, what would her sisters be named? And they're like, well, how about Elizabeth and Charlotte? And I'm like, great. Those sound right. Oh, I love that. You know, or like she's going to work at this type of business and it has this history. It was created, you know, like the backstory comes really easily to me in there. Sometimes that's all you need. It's like you get stuck on the little things when you're writing and it can help you get over those speed bumps. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I use that all the time. And then I, uh, one of the things I I've started using it for is I will put the transcript of the podcast in and just to say like, what are five things we even talked about? Because these conversations go all over the place and are never on topic. And so I have a real, <laughs> what people with ADHD talk like they're in a ping pong, not a ping pong. Um, Pinball. What's the one yeah. where you pinball, pinball machine? <laughs> I know exactly. Right. So there's times where I'm like, God, what do I even call this episode? I don't even know what this episode is about. What isn't it about? Like I, you know, and so I've started just putting it in, putting the tr- full transcript into ChatGPT and be like, what are five things we talk about? And then, and then <laughs> ChatGPT like, is like, you broke me. Uh, no, um, it's, it, it can be really helpful for that. Yeah. So, okay. We're totally off topic again. Um, we were talking about search engine. We were, yes. You asked me, (laughs) let me see if I can remember. Um, is there anything else beyond sort of that keyword research component Mm -hmm. and creating content that's based on what we're anticipating people need from us? I think there's also a lot in SEO around making sure that your content is formatted in a way that makes it easy for people to read. You know, with your show notes, you could very easily take the transcript and just have it be one big block of text. But both for uh, Google being able to understand what the most important pieces are, and for your readers to be able to skim easily, you do want to pull out here are the top five things that we talked about in this and be able to say here's a a podcast show note or podcast episode title that gives people an idea of what they're going to get, but also can show up in those search results for, you know, 
not just women in ADHD, but also every single episode can show up for something. People will actually want to click on it and listen to it and get to know you better that way. So I think a lot of it is not just um, what are those keywords, but then how do we use them in a structured way so that way people can can find it and actually want to click on it? Yeah. Yeah. That, I, I've had that complaint where I've, I've said, like, we talk about anxiety and, and then people will complain. Cause it's like, you talked about anxiety for five minutes, halfway through the episode. And I was like, I know, sorry, but we did, we did talk about it. Chat GPT said that it was an important part I know, of it. Right? <laughs> Don't blame me. Blame the bots. Um, okay. So for somebody who's still not convinced that they can... Or, or I guess as somebody who re- relies so heavily on something like, say, Instagram and Instagram Reels, you had mentioned newsletter. I your My email newsletter is, I think, the number one converter for me in terms of I, I, I could probably count on one hand the number of people who sign up for um, my group coaching or or other offerings who haven't already been on my newsletter list. Uh, and so are, what are some ways that you feel like people can reliably fall back on other less uh, irritating uh, <laughs> ways of communicating with their potential audience that aren't social well, media? In the book, I list out 17 different options, which I'm not going to list for you now, especially since I actually did close my browser window that had the book open. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. No! Okay. Well, um, go, go look, go read the book. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, I break it into two kind of categories when we think about this. The first is content marketing, which is how can you create something that people can consume when it's convenient for them that is evergreen in nature? So people can find it in a year, five years, 10 years from now and still have it be relevant. This podcast, some people might listen to it in July 2023, and some people might listen to it in July 2028, and the content's still relevant, and it'll still show up in that search result. So that would be, you know, um, and uh, when I say find it, I'm saying probably through search, but maybe they also find it through, you know, a referral source or a previous guest or something like that, right? So your podcast, your blogs, your YouTube, any of those ways that you are exhibiting your expertise in a way that other people can find and consume. And then so I would say that's sort of like top of funnel content marketing, how people can find you. And then I would say, you know, email marketing is so great for nurturing and converting. Um, It's still the way that is the most valuable cost per dollars that you're spending on it is email marketing. And then the other side of what I teach and practice is relationship building. So in addition to creating this piece of content together, Katie, now you're going, hey, I'm sort of endorsing Meg by having her on this podcast. She's the person that I would go to for this topic of SEO. Go check out her stuff, right? So there's a relationship being built in this piece of content as well. You know, you and I could collaborate on future projects. We could send each other referrals back and forth. We could join a mastermind together. We, You know, like there are a lot of ways that you can develop these online relationships and networks that are mutually beneficial to everyone who's included, but you don't have to do it in a DM. You don't have to log onto a platform that is built to be addictive and will drag you down into the rabbit hole. You can just, you know, reach out to previous colleagues and be like, hey, do you know anybody who needs this right now? It doesn't always have to be this like hyper automated solution with multiple segmentations. Maybe you just reach out to someone and say, do you know anyone? Right. Yeah. That's just as good for most relationship-based businesses. Traffic-based, you have to go automated, you have to scale. But if you're in a relationship-based business where you're high touch, high leverage, or not high leverage, low leverage, if you're high touch, 
if you don't need a huge volume of new people coming into you, you could just say to a friend, hey, can we do an email swap? Could we find a way to do a webinar together to talk about our services? Right. Could we maybe join an online summit so you get in front of new people? Right. It doesn't always have to be social media. Oh, my God. Uh, um, I can't wait to read your book. I'm so excited. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) You are changing lives, Meg. Well, no. And I think about my therapist because I'm actually going in. I'm I'm about to start school. I'm going back to get my um, mental health counseling certification to become a therapist. And I'm so excited. But one of the things I often daydream about is my own therapist who has never once like she doesn't have a website. She's never once marketed herself ever. It's all just word of mouth. And she's had a very, you know, vibrant business for many, many years. And I'm just like, you are my dream. That is my dream. (laughs) And that's the way all businesses used to be, right? Is uh, you're sure you could put up a billboard, you could buy a TV show ad. Like there are a lot of ways that you could mass market, but the traditional way of running, especially a local business is like, who do you know that you can introduce me to? And that, I think that almost like referrals have become a swear word in our culture of needing everything to be automated to the hilt. As strange as it is for me to say that as the SEO person who's like, get more cold traffic, like probably 60% of my business comes from referrals, comes from relationships, comes from collaborations, comes from, and probably another 20% is just Connecting with people like you and having honest conversations. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I track that stuff because I'm a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Okay. So I do love to ask, I don't know if you, if you thought about this at all, but I do love to ask my guests if they could rename ADHD to something a little less confusing or confounding. Would you call it something else or, or do you like, do you like the name? I don't like the name, but I don't have a better alternative. Yeah. Me neither. Perhaps we should go back to ChatGPT and be like, if you had these symptoms, give me a list of 30 different names that you would give this condition. You know what? I'm going to actually put that in the show notes. I'm going to I'm going to go after this episode. I'm going to ask ChatGPT what are five alternative names for ADHD and see what it comes up with. Don't even say alternative names for ADHD. Say if there were a condition where you would experience executive functioning disorder, I mean, maybe that's what it is. I think maybe it would be executive functioning disorder or something along those lines for me, because that to me is the biggest part of it. It's not necessarily focus. It's about decision-making and prioritization. But don't even say what's an alternative for ADHD, because then it's going to throw in those same terms. But if you say, here are here are the things that people experience if they have this, then it might spit out something that you really don't expect. Oh, you know, part of my part of my Hayes ADHD course, one of my favorite things about the course that I built was I have this sort of checklist quiz with 60, you know, random things that I discovered after I was diagnosed that also had to do with ADHD that I couldn't find anywhere that I was like, are you kidding? You know, weird things like I hate traffic, right? Or, you know, I hate standing in lines or things you don't necessarily associate with ADHD immediately. And I put together this whole list. And so I'm just, maybe I'll just plug in that whole list and see what it comes up with. Yes, I would love to see the results from that. Shoot me an email when you get it too, because now I need to know. I will, I will. <laughs> it's going to be that little ping in the back of my head, like, I wonder what Katie did. I wonder what ChatGPT did. I know, well, I'm going to put a list. Uh, um, I'm just typing this out to myself or else as soon as I get off this call, I will forget about it forever. <laughs> There's the executive functioning. <laughs> Well, this has been delightful. Thank you so much um, for sharing a little bit about your story and also your fascinating business, which is called Love It First Search. And how how long have you been doing this business? Like, how long have you been? 
running out. I've been in business since 2013, uh, doing exclusively search engine optimization for five or six years of that. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. And so now in addition to the book, which just came out, um, do you, I know you have some wonderful downloads on kind of your SEO starter kit, but uh, do you work with customers or do you have workshops or how do, how do people find you and work with you? Yeah, we have three ways that you can work with us. The first is if you're like, oh, this sounds confusing and I don't want to have to figure out keyword research and can't you just tell me what to do? You can hire our team to do one of our SEO roadmaps where we can either give you an itemized list of here are the changes to make based on our research, or we can go in and make those changes on any WordPress, Squarespace or Shopify site for you. Or if you want to learn how to do this, but you want to have somebody hold your hand through the process and have a group cohort to work through it with so you can learn from other people, we have a group training program called Attract and Activate that we run twice a year um, where we teach not just how to attract people, but also how to activate them to take action on your website. Uh, That's a four-month group program. So that way you're getting me every week to help you work through that process. And if you're like, I just want to talk to Meg and I don't want to have to figure out which program and let's just get on a call, you can go to loveitforsearch.com slash consulting. You can book just a one hour, 30 minute call with me, pick my brain session. And then if you decide that you want to move into one of those other options, we can take some of that and apply it to the programs. But sometimes that's a good way to be like, I don't know what I need. Yeah. Awesome. And of course, uh, I definitely want to plug the Social Slowdown podcast because I feel like that is a fantastic resource and you're just lovely to listen to. You're just to feel like, you know, very, very instantly feel like I'm your best friend. So I feel like that's the thing about people with ADHD. And you even put this in like your your pre-show notes where you're like, we're just going to leap right in. We like, I almost feel like our brains don't work on small talk. It's like... (laughs) People have told me, I feel like you you are having a conversation with somebody and you just hit the record right in the middle of it. Like, that's how it feels to talk to us. I know. And it kind of amazes me because I love having that conversation, but it amazes me that we can also follow along and listen to other people have this conversation. Like, that anyone listens to this podcast, it amazes me because I feel like I'm like, I'm a rambly, I don't know what I'm talking about. I just feel like, like we're just going off into, on all these tirades, but like, I also love listening to that too. And those those are my favorite podcasts is the ones that are like, I'm going to tell you 10 ways to do this. Those are the podcasts where I'm like, no, thank you enough. Um, I really like the ones where it's like, let's pontificate about, you know, uh, the, the meaning of life and yeah, um, <laughs> and how it all connects. Let's, let's see where this conversation goes <laughs> instead of following a script. It's much more interesting. To me. Yeah. Right. Same. Ah, okay. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for reaching out, Meg. It's been great to meet you and um, congratulations on your book. So the book is also called Love at First Search or is it called? The so- Look, book is called Social, Social Slowdown. Slowdown. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Well, there'll be links to all of that in the show notes. So um, check it out and um, let me know what I should put in the the SEO for this episode too. <laughs> I have. <laughs> Thanks, Meg. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. 
And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.